The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. The Wizards podcast hosts are not real. They are stupid cartoon people completely made up by this Arizona guy whom we hardly even know. The Wizards podcast hosts are nerdy, geeky, immature, self-deprecating dorks. But for some reason, the little wiener heads make us laugh. and welcome to Wizards, the podcast guide to comics, mini-episode 30.5. I'm Michael, and let's dive into it. First up, we have a segment from Adam about Ashcan. Take a listen. Check it out. Greetings, geeks. Adam back again here with a little bit of bonus discussion. So issue 30 of Wizard contained a fascinating sidebar about Ashcan Comics, which many of you will remember became collectible items in the 90s. But just what are Ashcans then? Well, here's the thing. Back in the golden age, in the 30s, in order to secure a copyright on a book title, publishers would grab an old comic from their stock, paste on a new title they intended to secure and send it off to the copyright office as if to say, oh yeah, this is a book that we published. This is a comic that's on the stands. And ultimately, they were just meant to be thrown away in the trash or the ash can after this task was completed. Hence the name, right? So it's really interesting. DC did a lot of this back in the day. And there's some of those that still exist like Superman Comics number one and Action Comics number one, Detective Comics, Batman, and all these, all these different comics that there are Ashcans that still exist from that era, which is interesting. But eventually, Ashcans became promotional tools for independent comics creators who could then more easily create, you know, a small black and white printing of their comic to send out to retailers or potential publishers for their material, you know, to basically provide a preview of just what they had to offer and then encourage the ordering of their comic. Now, interestingly enough, Issue 30 also contained a tutorial on how to create your own Ashcan comic. So obviously this was a big deal. It was in the zeitgeist of the time. So in the 90s, Image Comics began sending out Ashcans to drum up excitement for their new comic book line, as if they needed any help. But Youngblood, for example, Youngblood number one had an Ashcan, and these promo comics began to be a hot item for collectors due to their rarity, because Image would purposely print up a small run of Ashcans to get out to the comic book store owners and comics press. Uh, you know, and basically encouraged the ordering of their chronically late books. It even began offering them for order in the pages of their own comics in limited quantities. You know, ooh, here's the collectible. Get it today. Now, speaking of image, the Ashcan concept was actually used at this time by a castaway member of their imprint in a very unique way. Now, you might recall the original image founders briefly brought in more talent. So you had like Sam Keith doing the Max, you had Dale Keown doing Pitt, which were very popular. And then in kind of a second wave, they brought in Keith Giffen to do Trencher, Larry Stroman to do tribe and mike grell doing shaman's tears everybody you know it's michael's favorite title for a comic book as an expansion of their brand then very shortly after they rescinded the offer and left those creators without a publisher well mike grell was upset by the image owner's cancellation of his book after just two issues and so he produced an ash can edition of issue number three basically to keep the book relevant and explain the conditions under which he lost the image label on his books so it actually the cover of the shaman's tears ash can says the book image comics refused to print the infamous third issue of Mike Grell's Shaman's Tears. Okay, so here is what he had to say about it in the opening page. Well, there's one way to make certain your book comes out on time. Publish the damn thing yourself. 
Originally, Shaman's Tears number 3 was scheduled to ship in mid-September. The book was complete, save four pages of coloring, when the storm surrounding Hurricane Emily attacked the neighborhood of our friend and colorist, Julia Lacrimont, who was forced to abandon her abode. It seems it's a bit difficult to paint when you have no electricity for lighting and for the airbrush, and you have water seeping in through every open molecule. Unfortunately, this caused a delay on those final pages and necessitated a one-week postponement in the shipping of this book. When that happened, Image Comics decided to cancel the series. Our best guess is that Image was trying to protect their flawless shipping record. Then again, relations have been quite strained lately. Todd McFarlane's statement that we're not going to sit here and make people rich by taking advantage of us. We felt we were being used by some of these people, and we got rid of them. That was a quote from a Comics Buyer's Guide issue in 93. And as Mike goes on, is as inaccurate as it is offensive. In Todd's case, I think it's also deeply ungrateful. Nonetheless, it is spilt milk. Anyway, we asked Mark Wheatley, who was handling the color separation, to ship us back everything. So within 24 hours of our cancellation notice, we had the entire book in our hands. We had all the original art and all the color. Coincidentally, my new bride and I were staying at Mike's house at the time. Nice way to start a honeymoon. As we stated publicly, we have been negotiating with other publishers since the beginning of May. Issue 3 had sold a quarter million copies, and there, there was only a slight drop-off in our orders for Issue 5. There's no shortage of publishers who want to pick up a series with those kinds of numbers. Our deal, though, is far more than Shaman's Tears. It's also for Bar Sinister, the untitled John Sable, Maggie the Cat book, and a few titles produced by friends of ours. There's a tougher contract, and we're only dealing with experienced business people. Live and learn. But we decided to print this book to show our readers that it does indeed exist. This ash can is being released within about a week of the time it would have been published by Image. It is deeply ironic that the one thing you can't see in this ash can is Julia's beautiful color work. You're going to have to wait until the real version of this book is published. We anticipate this happening shortly after the first of the year. So there you go. Kind of interesting, right? A chance to stick it to Image to prove your book is still relevant. So good for you, Mike Grell. It should be mentioned also that Grell eventually managed to get Shaman's Tears back at Image and produced many more issues of the comic beyond number three. So it'll be very interesting as we get into the history here, going through the pages of Wizard, what we find out about that. Now, personally for me, I only learned about Ashcans through Wizard's competitor, Hero Illustrated. That comics magazine regularly polybagged an Ashcan comic or two sometimes in with their issues as promotional tools. It was the first time I saw these tiny little comics. My favorite being the Radioactive Man meets Bartman Ashcan from Bongo Comics. Now, generally speaking, these pack-in Ashcans aren't quite as rare or valuable simply because of the volume in which they were printed and distributed on newsstands. These days, really, true Ashcans are few and far between, as most new comics creators simply publish their book online or get the word out, you know, by sending it to someone in a PDF format as a sales tool. But vintage, non-mass-produced Ashcans can still fetch you a pretty penny. Specifically, one person who made an art form out of creating Ashcans was Bob Burden, the creator of The Flaming Carrot, and Mystery Men, if you guys ever saw that Ben Stiller movie. But back in the day when he was producing these comics, he would actually do like individual covers for each one like they were super collector's items by design, and they would be so hard to get your hands on them. So th those are ones that are interesting. I'd actually like to see if I could find one these days, knowing that I love my flaming carrot. But I'm curious for you, do you have any memories of Ashcan comics? Have you ever produced one yourself? We know a lot of you out there are comics professionals listening. So let us know on social media. I'd be very curious to understand your connection to the world of Ashcan comics. And now, over to you, Stephen. Now, Stephen and I are going to share the top 10 comics of February 1994. And now we're going to talk about the top 10 comics of 1994. So, Stephen, normally we do the 10 to 1 and kind of get spoiled early on. Do you want to go 1 to 10 or do you want to go 10 to 1? I think for this this episode, moving forward, we should do 1 to 10. Okay. So the jokes that they make play out in the right way. <laughs> that, that That's sounds what I'm good. thinking. I, I, I agree. Okay. And, and as I'm literally looking at this page, I'm like, oh, 
boy, a lot of the same stuff we've talked about several times over. Well, what do you know? Here we go. So the number one book is Moon Knight 56, which we've talked about several times. Stephen Platt's artwork, or Splat's artwork, has left a smoking wake on comic shelves across the country since his work in Moon Knight 55, which came out, came to the attention of an unexpected public. The dynamic storytelling of Mr. Platt, as well as the teensy-weensy print runs for the first few Moon Knight books, have fueled this mania. Making this book, the first few issues of Moon Knight books, have drawn a mania and making this a must-have for the crafty completist collection since the recent announcement of moon knight's cancellation oh my god this this book is like going on fire it's been on this list for months and now it's getting canceled it's like but the collectors aren't shaken too much by it because it seems like these issues featuring mr platt's toddy-esque art will keep fans scrambling for a while to get this book okay great <laughs> i can't believe the book is being canceled and i know it's, it's so stupid way to go yeah really way to go marvel uh so the next book number two is a book we've covered here ad nauseum daredevil 319 i'm not gonna read the whole thing because there's just so much no. but i thought this was funny the real reason this book is so hot is because it kicks off a whole new storyline fall from grace which features the introduction of DD's new threads, the resurrection of Electra again, and the revelation of exactly how much undigested red meat is in Foggy Nelson's colon. Wait, that's next issue. So, <laughs> Daredevil 319, we've said everything we can say about it. What's yeah. number three? Number three is Wolverine 75. Last Fall's Fatal Attractions crossover featured major events which rocked Marvel's mutant verse to its very core colossus quit the x-men and magneto got fired which were major events but nothing had the same impact as when wolvies had all the adamantium sucked out of him like the dust from a pixie stick and if you know what a pixie stick is you know that dust got everywhere. <laughs> it was a mess. Can I just say how happy I am that you opened up that book? Because now I see it's out of the plastic. It, I took it out for this segment. <laughs> That's hilarious. Because it spent, wasn't out when we recorded the actual episode. But It wasn't out until just now. So two weeks later. <laughs> so, I'm happy that magazine finally gets to breathe. Yeah. And then it breathes in the bottom of my garbage can afterwards. <laughs> So that's our number three book. Okay, great. So number four is Moon Knight number 55, another Moon Knight book. Obviously, 56 was number one. So it says, anyway, if you hadn't heard about Stephen Platt yet, he's the hottest name to come out of post-image Marvel, and he has made quite a good impression on fans in the few short months he's been doodling. It's no wonder Rob Liefeld was all over Platt like white on rice, and now Platt has left Marvel and his scheduled penciling stint on cable to work on profit. <laughs> so what about these issues of the soon-to-be-canceled Moon Knight? While it is true that these books are boiling hot and will apparently remain so for some time, Platt's departure and the cancellation of the series will adversely affect these hot books somewhere down the line. So there you go, Moon Knight 55. Let's hope Character. that they won't be on the list next month. <laughs> I know, I'm so sick of talking about Moon Knight. I know. Like, this list should really and truly should be different every month, not the same 10 books. It'd be nice. Number five is Daredevil 320, which we've talked about several times over. Another book sporting a minuscule print run. Yeah, it falls a little bit, but it's, it's, you know, the first chapter in the Fall from Grace storyline. We've covered it a million times. That's number five is Daredevil 320. Speaking of Daredevil, the next book is Ben Affleck, number one. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's Daredevil Man Without Fear, number one. Interesting to note, the artist was John Romita Jr. The writer is Frank Miller. 
and the description says Frank Miller Daredevil, Frank Miller Daredevil, Frank Miller Daredevil. Man, I don't get tired of saying that. How great is it that there is new Frank Miller Daredevil stuff to read every month? For a while, anyway. So, yes, it's another Frank Miller run on Daredevil. It's very exciting. And there this, you go. This was my first introduction to Daredevil. Was it really? Yeah. Other than maybe like the, you know, you know, action figures back in the 80s. But like this was the first book that I ever read of Daredevil. I, I love this story. And then I didn't like a lot of the other stories beyond this. Mm-hmm. And then the Ed Brubaker run in the early 2000s. I read every issue of it. I love that. I was uh, I was big into Daredevil in the early 90s. First issue I bought was in like 90 or 91. It was an Owlman cover. He was fighting Owlman. Hmm. Uh, and then I bought like a 1970s issue. Really? That's uh, cool. Like where he fought the Purple Man. Uh, hmm. So yeah, so I, I, I love Daredevil. And I never a, read this. You never read you never read uh, Man Without Fear? I've never read Man Without Fear. Wow, it's a good book. It's very I'll get cool. on it. Ninjack number... One is our seventh book on this list. Why is this book hot, you ask? Many reasons. This book has a cool story by Mark Moretti, a neat villain by the name of Dr. Silk, an exciting new lead character in Ninjack, one of the coolest covers ever, and the pulse-pounding art of Joe Quesada, Jimmy Palmiotti, and John Cebolero. Why did we mention all of the above creators while describing Ninjak number one? Because it appears that there was an error in the production of this book, omitting all the aforementioned creators' names. Whoops. (laughs) Another reason this book is headed for the back issue stratosphere is its print run. It's by no means infinitesimal look it up okay where would you look it up but nonetheless it's still about a quarter of that of turok number one remember the book which as soon as you remove the chromium cover makes some great kindling (laughs) oh my god jeez louise (laughs) jeez i'll tell you the 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 wizard wit in some of these segments it's it's funny to read it, but I look at it and I'm like, the sometimes the verbiage they use is so, I don't know, it's funny. I don't know how to even describe it. It's very college student. Yes, it is. Coming out of college, you got this big degree and you want to start sounding like you're using it. Right. And it's funny. <laughs> I enjoyed it as a kid. I still I enjoy t- it. What's our number eight book? Number eight is Thunder Punch He-Man number two, or as we call it, Prime number two, or as they call it, Prime number two. I call it Thunder Punch He-Man number two because he's got the same damn outfit as Thunder Punch He-Man. Okay, I'll read about Prime again. (laughs) At this point, I'm just going to buy Prime number two. I'm not even, Uh, I don't even care about Prime number one or two, but yeah. Yeah. (laughs) There's no good jokes in here because they're just selling Prime two. So whatever. Yeah. Yeah, Underpunch Man, Prime Two, move on to nine. Number nine is a new one on our list, finally, thank goodness. It is Avengers West Coast number one oh two. After nearly ten years and a hundred and two issues, the Avengers West Coast has finally bit the dust. It appears that the real Avengers feel that the left coast gang were just not getting the job done and took a vote to pull the plug. It didn't sit too well with a few of the wackos, our pet names for AWC members, which is Avengers West Coast Avengers, if you couldn't figure Mm -hmm. that out. And Tony Stark decided that it was for the best that they not fight the outcome. Member after member turned in their Avengers IDs and a page of history was irrevocably turned. AWC will be replaced by a new Stark funded team force works 
get it. It's like saying using force works. Force works. Hardy har har. Ah, uh, whatever. <laughs> Longtime Avengers fans may want to watch this title closely since a major character is set to be kiboshed real soon. Who gets who gets the kibosh? I have no idea. Is he US <laughs> agent? He's the he is on the cover and he seems like the most one, most PO'd one, I guess. So I'm gonna go with US Agent, which is kind of funny because he's coming back in two weeks in in Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Finally. <laughs> yeah. We finally get him. So number ten, a book I actually love and I own. It's Green Lantern number 46. It says, During the Red Hot Reign of the Superman crossover running through the Superman titles, Green Lantern number 46 snuck in there as a very low-key crossover. Retailers didn't order bushels, deja vu. Fans decided they had to own this not-so-easy-to-find issue. And you know what happened? Bingo, hot book. Before we go, take a look at this month's top 10. After months of being dominated by gimmick covers and all sorts of gimmick crap, the 10 hottest books in the country are mostly those without any type of gimmick. Even those with gimmicks are hot for reasons other than a fancy cover. It's a refreshing change, and I, for one, hope that the non-fad fad lasts. When we did the main episode, you asked Stacy and I the, the comics IQ. We only did a couple of questions. Okay. Do you want to try to do maybe like one or two more? Sure. I'll ask you and see if you can answer them. Okay, then I won't look. In how many issues of Fantastic Four did the FF fight monsters, aliens, and other freaks in their street clothes? One, two, three, or none? It was three. It was not. It was two. <laughs> so did they get the, they get the costumes in issue number three? I I guess it doesn't it doesn't say it just I says it was four. Do they get the Fantastic Car in uh ish in number four? You would know better than me. I I I didn't. I I knew that the first issue didn't have a cause, but I didn't know by the second one they didn't either. But interesting. But Act yeah, like the asshole. answer the answer is B. Yeah, they get it in three. They get the Fantastic Car and the Fantastic Four costumes in three. That's a great okay. cover too. I gotta look All it right. up now. I'm interested. Who was not a founding member of the Justice League Europe? Wonder Woman, The Flash, Animal Man, or Green Lantern? I think it was Green Lantern. That is correct. Okay. I remember Animal Man. I was a big Animal Man fan at the time. Okay. There's a couple of years ago they did a, a new like a Vertigo series of Animal Man. It is really good. Really, really good. I'll let me let me know what that is after the pod because I want to add that to my wish list. Okay. Um, I'll do one more for you. Who was the first foe to battle? Second generation X Men: Count Nefaria, mm-hmm. Black Tom Cassidy, Karkua or Karkoa, and Doctor Stephen Lang. I think it's A. No, it is C. Karkoa. Karkoa. Yep. All right. You got one out of three. It's better than I did. I think. <laughs> so really feel stupid about the Fantastic Four one. But this is a kind of a cool quiz I, I like these kind of things these comics iq because they make me feel dumb but also kind of learn something at the same time <laughs> and they always have really funny uh you know multiple choice answers yeah they do some of their best jokes in there and that was our top 10 comics and a little bit more of comics iq for this mini episode don't forget to check us out next week when we have the dark book coming up which will be super exciting to talk about Let's now take a listen to our Hunk and Babe of the Month with Adam and Annie. I'm too sexy for my shirt, too sexy for my shirt, so sexy it hurts. And I'm too sexy for Milan, too sexy for Milan, New York and Japan. Mm-mm-mm, must be that time of the month. That's right, for Hunkin' Babe of the Month. 
And this time around for our babe, we have a character coming from Now Comics Siphons, Rays. If some superhero team leader gave me a costume that consisted of about two feet of material and a piece of dental floss to end up jammed in my butt, odds are I'd go looking for membership in the Inferior Five or something. Anyway, for those of you who don't recognize our lovely friend Ray's here, let's see a show of hands, huh? Wow, everybody? She's the kinetic energy-wielding babe from the pages of Now's new Super Team Supreme, The Siphons. Whether fighting supervillains or picking wedgies, Ray's is always turning heads. Yeah, so this is wild. Uh, yeah, like we're saying there, there's barely anything on that costume. And I do see that this was, uh, the picture they pulled was from the preview edition of Siphons by Now Comics. Now is mostly known for all of their licensed comics, you know, Green Hornet, Married with Children, the real Ghostbusters. So it's kind of odd that they were getting into this a uh, bit of, uh, hmm, scandalousness, I guess you would call it. But uh, getting back to the good old days to some classic beefcake or steel cake? Who do we have for our hunk of the month, Annie Flowers? And now for the hunk of the month. Here is Colossus. This guy definitely waxes his back and his legs and his arms. Ten Buck says that under that little pair of Tarzan underoos lurks a waxed butt. And, well, anyway. So now that old Petey boy is a bad guy... Will it stop the women folk from bringing him home to mama? Hmm, probably not. With the bod he's built up bench-pressing Long Island and popping sweats in the danger room, the ladies are really sweet on this big metal dude. And with Kitty Pride definitely out of the way now, this big boy is fair game. He looks impressively smooth. Oh my goodness, look at this guy. And uh, he has these little cheetah print underoos on, I guess. That's something. I've actually heard of him from my husband, and I'm not 100% sure, but I'm going to say he's from X-Men. What can I say? He's got buns of steel over here. Good looking dude. Thanks, Annie. And now, back to you, Michael. Next, Steven's going to tell us all about this month's Homemade Heroes. Now it's time for Homemade Heroes. I'm sure that I just followed that Homemade Heroes rap that Adam made using my voice. Clearly, I love that hearing me rap. So exciting. So anyway, our first prize winner is from Jeff Douglas of Tampa, Florida. It's a Johnny Blaze figure that was made out of a Toy Biz Banshee figure. And it says with that oh-so-awesome whistling feature, ugh. Uh, and the caption reads Sarah Connor with a question mark because the toy kind of looks like the Terminator. Uh, I had the Banshee toy. I got it for my birthday in sixth grade from my friend Chris. I love that toy. And then my sister, who's 10 years younger than me, used the whistle part as a teething toy and just chewed it so it was useless. Uh, and then recently, Adam sent me a new one, and it was the coolest thing because he heard me talk about it on the podcast. So now I have a Banshee toy again, thanks to Adam, who made a rap out of my voice. Uh, next, another first prize winner we have from Dan Feldmeyer of Baker City, Oregon, the Mighty Blade. The Vampire Hunter, made out of a Hasbro G.I. Joe Mercer figure. It says, for you, I dance the mamushka. Uh, clearly, the Adams Family joke. He does kind of have a mamushka pose with the two swords. It's funny. And our final first prize winner is from uh, Philip Aha of San Juan Capistrano, California. Jesus Christ. Where's that? He made the not-so-pleasant dinner party vengeance from a toy biz. Crew, cruel toy biz cruel is that a guy i don't know who that is and it says uh the joke says must be murder for this guy to eat corn on the cob and what's with all the milk bones because he kind of looks like a dog okay not the best joke so the grand prize winner there are three grand prize winners first up it's uh from jd edwards of phoenix city alabama uh this awesome morbius was made out of a Peter Chris Kiss doll. That's a new one. The costume is handmade. Oh, Adam, Kiss doll. You can make things out of it. Uh, next, we have from David Peoples of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, a Ghost Rider made out of a Toy Biz Kane figure. 
and the joke says, hey, is that flame coming out of his collar or does the hair on his back need a trim? Oh, back hair joke. Okay. The wizard readers, uh, when they were 10, didn't get that. But now, 30 years later, they get it. So our grand prize winner is two figures from Charlie Flats of Newport Ritchie, Florida. Uh, so it says he had two awesome entries, which won him a spot at the top of the list. Both figures owe their bodies to Mego figures, and Charlie supplied the homemade costumes and the hand-sculpted heads. So it's Morbius and Doctor Strange. They look really cool. I mean, better than Mego figures. That head sculpting is really, really cool. The funny thing is that the Doctor Strange figure, the caption reads, Burt Reynolds, Sorcerer Supreme, he does really look like Burt Reynolds. I mean, dead on Burt Reynolds' head. So I remember that joke from this time and thinking it was hilarious. So there you go. That's Homemade Heroes. Let's see what Michael's got. Now here's a sneak peek at our Patreon-exclusive Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles episode of 90 Super Cinema on patreon.com slash wizardscomics, where you can get a free preview of this episode right now at our Patreon. totally forgot about was it ties into daredevil's origin as well that is correct which was that really is weird i was going to go into that peter laird and kevin eastman were big frank miller fans and and daredevil fans so the ninja turtles are supposed to be the homage to frank miller and daredevil in fact the cover for issue one looks a lot like frank miller's ronin if you guys want to look oh, that yeah. up i know that michael have you read the first issue of, Turtle, of Turtles, no, I never okay. have. But you can spoil it for me, it's okay. <laughs> okay, well, yeah, we were going to do it anyway. It's 35 uh, years later, it's all right. <laughs> yeah, old spoilers. <laughs> Basically, the ooze, they don't say it directly, but the ooze came from the truck that blinded Matt Murdock, I, supposed I've, to be. I've heard that recently, as within the last couple of years, that I heard that they're you know, they're somehow connected in, you know, a multiverse type of a, the ooze is what ties the two things together, which I find super interesting. And I, I, I love it. I love that idea. I love that whole concept. It's that they are somehow connected, which is pretty cool. And you got to think about it. Who does Daredevil fight? What's that ninja clan name? The hand. No, Daredevil. The hand. Sorry, the, hand. hand. <laughs> the hand. Yes, they are the hand. And who is Daredevil's teacher? Sticks. Oh. Sticks. Stick. And who is who who's the Ninja Turtles teacher? Splinter. Splinter. There you oh, go. I never put those things together. <sighs> My brain just blown. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. I never thought of that. Wow, that's interesting. Holy cow. I mean, they just did a, a Ninja Turtles Batman crossover ran for about a year. People were obsessed with that. I'm yeah, the cartoon was better, but yeah, the cartoon was pretty good. I like that movie. I haven't seen it yet. I, I want to oh, check it it's out. It's good. It's a good is animated it, is movie. Is it kid safe? Is it kid friendly? Yeah, I mean, there's some blood. Okay, I'd there's say some blood. Your son's a little bit young for it, still. I'd say. Okay. They they say damn. <gasps> damn. <laughs> damn. What's the basic premise of the Ninja Turtles movie? It's kind of hard to say. I mean, if you had asked me what the sto- premise of this story was, it's basically the origin story of the turtles and the origin of Shredder, essentially, and. The, the story is them making themselves almost known as heroes in a way or, or becoming heroes. That's the story, right? Well, the story is ninjas. That's, <laughs> what, that's what the story is. There's ninjas fighting each other. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, the basic story is the foot are going through New York, stealing things, stealing an old lady's TV on a fire escape. I don't know how much you're getting <laughs> yeah. for that. Five bucks. This poor lady, she's just watching the news about the foot. And then they're like, you know what? We're just going to yoink, yoink that TV right out of the way. And so they're basically trying to, in a, like an almost Pinocchio Pleasure Island kind of way, attract kids into the foot with video games and skateboards. 
cigarettes menthol cigarettes or? yes <laughs> yeah cigarettes. sam rockwell's is obviously one of the <laughs> leaders there and through that story we meet april o'neill who is a reporter trying to cover this and her her boss is getting some grief from the chief of police about covering it the foot confront april one day and then the ninja turtles save her and then the next time they confront her basically she gets knocked out they take her to the lair and who would you say is like the protagonist of the turtles in this movie? I say, I mean, this movie mostly revolves around Raphael in a lot of cases. Like, right. Yeah, I mean, that's what he, I think too. He has that whole, you know, Roger Corman, Fantastic Four, Hulk's uh, th- uh, thing sequence where he's kind of like roaming around New York in a trench coat yep. with a, an oversized hat. <laughs> <laughs> goes to a movie you know he's he's the main focus of the movie and i would say probably leonardo would be number two in this movie yeah as, as the two main protagonists in this film and it's yeah, really I mean, about their relationship yeah yeah that's that's been a common theme with every iteration of ninja turtles is raf versus leo what's the basic premise of the ninja turtles movie it's kind of hard to say i mean if you had asked me what the sto- premise of this story was it's basically the origin story of the turtles and the origin of shredder essentially. And the, the story is them making themselves almost known as heroes in a way, or, or becoming heroes. That's the story, right? Well, the story is ninjas. That's (laughs) what, that's what the story is. There's ninjas fighting each other. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, the basic story is the foot are going through New York, stealing things, stealing an old lady's TV on a fire escape. I don't know how much you're getting for that. (laughs) Five bucks. This poor lady, she's just watching the news about the foot. And then they're like, you know what? We're just going to yoink that TV right out of the way. And so they're basically trying to, like an almost Pinocchio Pleasure Island kind of way, attract kids into the foot with video games and skateboards Cigarettes, menthol. Cigarettes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Cigarettes. Sam Rockwell's is obviously one <laughs> of the leaders there. And through that story, we meet April O'Neill, who is a reporter trying to cover this. And her her boss is getting some grief from the chief of police about covering it. The foot confront April one day, and then the Ninja Turtles save her. And then the next time they confront her, basically she gets knocked out. They take her to the lair. And who would you say is like the protagonist of the turtles in this movie? I say, I mean, this movie mostly revolves around Raphael in a lot of cases. Like, I mean, that's what I think too. He has that whole, you know, Roger Corman, Fantastic Four Hulk's uh, uh, thing sequence where he's kind of like roaming around New York in a trench coat with an oversized hat (laughs) goes to a movie. You know, he's, he's the main focus of the movie and I would say probably Leonardo would be number two in this movie yeah. as, as the two main protagonists in this film. And it's yeah, really I mean, about their relationship. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's been a common theme with every iteration of Ninja Turtles is Raph versus Leo. That episode was so fun to record. It was hilarious. We had a great time with Nerd Jam. He really brought his A-game, and he schooled me on some real deep turtle knowledge. And I will always forever remember, it is a turtle van, not a turtle truck. Even though I knew that, I just happened to forget and misquoted at the time. Now, Adam has a review of some exciting Gen 13 titles. Hey there, geeks! Adam calling in on the Gen 13 line to give you the deets on the totally fresh Teen Heroes from the Image comic book that would take the industry by storm in 1994. Last time around, I told you about the long and winding path for the book to finally reach shelves, 
Originally planned to be just four issues, it ultimately arrived as a five-part miniseries to great anticipation. But before I run down The Adventure Within, let me tell you what part Wizard played in getting the word out with issue 30. While flipping the magazine open, readers would find an offer for a Gen 13 half comic, which was just the second Wizard half offered after the very successful debut edition starring The Max. The Gen 13 half was redeemable with $2 for shipping and handling and a mail-in coupon through an ad featuring some classic Wizard snark to entice you to send it in. Quote, If you don't use that coupon, that thing sticking up in your face, you get bubkiss, and you'll most likely be ostracized from society. Society. Well, maybe not ostracized, but you'll probably be eating your lunch alone as your peers mock you and read their copies. Anyway, this one-time offer is made even better with the inclusion of a Jim Lee interview and a Gen 13 sketchbook. Gen 13 prequel, Jim Lee interview, sketchbook... Nope, it doesn't get any better than this. Then there's an asterisk leading you to fine print at the bottom of the page. Quote, We checked, and unless we give out Cindy Crawford's home phone number with every order, it really doesn't get better than this. End quote. <laughs> so yeah, definitely trying to make it seem like the cool thing to do. Now also in Wizard 30 was a four-page preview of the opening pages from the first issue, which features none of the main characters, so it was kind of a misrepresentation of what the book had to offer. Speaking of misrepresentation, as a kid, I was so convinced that this was Jim Lee drawing the book because J. Scott Campbell did a great imitation of his style. And in rebellion of Jim Lee being so popular, I didn't pick up the book in stores, only checking it out the following year when the ongoing series launched and there seemed to be a new artist on the book is how I was perceiving it. I thumbed through a trade collection at a friend's house once, but this was my first full read-through of the miniseries. So what's it all about? Let's get into it. Issue 1 opens with a mother and father rushing their young daughter and son through the countryside while being chased by armored soldiers in a flying vehicle. And while the father seems to have superhuman abilities, both parents are murdered in front of the children. We then cut to present day to a college campus where we meet a mousy redhead named Caitlin Fairchild, who is a computer science major and finds herself invited by mysterious men in suits to join the Gen 13 program. Soon we see the kids have been taken to a military base-like operation run by a sexy woman named Ivana for international operations, and she has a kinky brother and sister duo named Threshold and Bliss overseeing the training. Caitlin literally runs into a wacky guy named Grunge and a petite fashion plate named Roxy a few times during their stay at the facility before they are attacked by guards, during which time Caitlin literally hulks out as her body grows substantially out of her tiny frame, with her clothes struggling to stay intact. This image is actually the main focus of the cover, which you gotta admit is kind of strange for a superhero comic to make a woman in tattered clothes its star. Look, even She-Hulk had more clothes on in her first issue cover. I actually have also a 3D edition of the first issue, and yes, Fairchild's assets pop off the page, in case you were curious. But actually, the 3D really does enhance some cool moments with like the soldiers holding guns, and there's some nice perspective and a little bit of depth that's added that was already part of the original design, so it works out. If you're curious, find that 3D issue. Now, issue two opens with the crew of Grunge, Roxy, Caitlin, already on the run, having escaped from the base with an older man named Tom leading the charge and two new recruits, Bobby and Sarah. It turns out Tom has telekinetic blast powers, Bobby can set his body on fire with flame, Sarah can control the weather, Roxy even manifests a telekinetic power over gravity while being attacked, and Caitlin can lift giant boulders to hurl at her pursuers. In a flashback, we learn that Tom helped the crew escape, gave the mostly naked Caitlin her green car costume that is so iconic, but now wants them to go back and destroy the base, which Caitlin, not trusting this mysterious would-be leader, refuses to do, stating they need to find a place to hide and get away, not go back. The rest of the group returns with Tom, and he is revealed to be Threshold in disguise. Incapacitating the young subjects, a psychic link between Caitlin and Roxy is revealed. There is a reason for this, but it's not revealed until the ongoing series. The final panel finds Caitlin Fairchild, gearing up to go rescue her 
friends. It's interesting to note that though burnout was introduced out of nowhere in this issue, unless you count, you know, Johnny Storm's appearance back in 1961 because the parallels are too obvious, uh, Sarah Rainmaker actually debuted in an issue of another Jim Lee comic, Stormwatch. And yes, she's basically just Storm from the X-Men. The cover, though, states introducing Rainmaker, and she gets her own little insert image, not appearing in action with the other four members of the team in their main pose. Issue 3 features a fully unnecessary cameo, I would say, by Dale Keown's pit on the cover and within. I'm sure this boosted the visibility of the book, but the brawl between Fairchild and the Big Grey Brute really just fills pages with action, while the only major plot point occurring in the issue is Grunge finally discovering his power set. So Threshold has Roxy, Bobby, Sarah, and Grunge trapped, all naked, in a lab, where he is trying to get Grunge to manifest his abilities, which the goofy guy only manages to do when the villain attacks Roxy. What are his powers, you ask? Well, Grunge can absorb the properties of any substance he touches, in this case metal, and he uses his heavy metal hand to knock out Threshold so they can escape. You know. Again, it should be mentioned that as a bonus, there is an offer for a Gen 13 number zero ash can, but you have to clip or photocopy the coupons from issues one through four to redeem it. For more details on the origin and rise in popularity of ash can comics, check out my other segment in this mini episode. Issue number four features a very fun wraparound cover featuring the team and Pitt in action against the soldiers called Keepers, but also features a fun roll call design running along the bottom of the action that's reintroducing all the main characters and villains. Now, one major difference within is that the paper stock has changed from a glossy look that was in the first three issues to a more standard newsprint. It doesn't hurt the dynamic action within, though, as the team's powers are now in full effect as they try to escape the facility together. At one point, Grunge even absorbs bullets that were shot into his chest and then spits them out, with Roxy, aka Freefall, exclaiming, Grunge baby, that's so Mondo rad. After a few more pages, Pitt finally bounds away from the scene with his elementary school sidekick Timmy in tow. Good riddance. Though he has been present throughout the series up to this point, John Lynch, who is a higher up at International Operations, or I.O., arrives with his Black Hammer squad to save the kids, explaining that he was part of Team 7, a quote, group of super-powered agents just like the Youngblood, and by exposing us to the Gen Factor, we became the Gen 12, which he also reveals had all the Gen 13 kids' fathers as part of their rank. It's revealed as well that Threshold and Bliss were the two kids who saw their parents gunned down in the first issue flashback, if you hadn't pieced that together by now. Now, issue 5 concludes the adventure with one of the most iconic covers featuring the Gen 13 crew. They're all back-to-back in a circle on a plain white background, just a little bit of shadow on their feet in fighting poses. It looks really great. There was also a variant Wills Portacio cover for this issue, but I prefer the J. Scott Campbell design. Now, this issue really shows an evolution in Campbell's art into the slightly more fun, cartoony style and away from the Jim Lee clone that he began as. The team has a final showdown with Threshold, and we find Bliss entering the fray finally to subdue Bobby, aka Burnout, with her mesmerizing power. It's not really explained what she does, but it seems like her outfit alone could have made him weak in the knees, powers or not. It's a va-va-voom here. Meanwhile, Lynch faces off against Ivana, who it's revealed has bionic implants, like molecularized razor wire shredder cords in her fingertips. But luckily, Lynch is a gen active, so he uses his own telekinesis to wrap the wires around Ivana, trapping her. Threshold decides to save his sister instead of finishing the fight, and they fly away, surely to return in a future issue. The final panel has the group agreeing to go underground with Lynch to learn more about their powers and their heritage. So we also get a kind of a fun thing at the very end. Grunge is breaking the fourth wall, drawn as if he's pulling up the page and he's kind of peeking out from behind it and saying, hey, we'll see you at Gen 13 number zero. You know, so kind of a fun way to invite people to continue on with them. So 
my final thoughts here, I, I would say aside from the repetitive escape, return to capture, escape plotting, plan, it's plain to see that the characterizations that made the Gen 13 book popular were there from the start. And while they don't get much chance to show off their trendy modern fashion, which became a staple of the ongoing title, the hairstyles, the attitudes, and the dialogue at least gave younger readers, of the time anyway, a way to relate. Unfortunately, the miniseries is just a little too self-serious, which I assume is the influence of Jim Lee's original vision. There's just so many armored soldiers and covert warfare concepts. It's, it's totally missing the appeal that the characters themselves presented. So as Brandon Choi and J. Scott Campbell got more of a leash to give the book a freewheeling kind of tone with superhero action just mixed in, it found its sweet spot. Now, next time around, I'll be reviewing the Gen 13 half and issue zero books that served as a bridge to the ongoing title, each in their own unique ways. Plus, I have a little surprise in store for you guys. So, until next time, stay cool. Now, I'm going to go into the drawing board's top three for February of 1994. Now, this segment of the drawing board is a little bit different than the homemade heroes or the amazing art section if you will and it basically only lists a couple of awesome art and i want to talk about a few of them adam shared a few on our social media but this is the ones that i thought are really really cool in first place there's an x-men drawing by luis mangabot and it is gambit and psylocke and wolverine and it is like coming off the pages this could be a painting in a museum it's breathtaking it's really really awesome two of the biggest runner-ups that i want to talk about because they're just outrageous is the first runner-up is robocop versus terminator by roger paris and this again could legitimately be a painting it is breathtakingly amazing it looks like it could have been done on a computer that's how good it is it's outrageous there's another runner-up of a pencil sketch of Spawn and Todd McFarlane kind of blending faces together by A. Paul Folks, And this thing is outrageous. This could have been like a movie storyboard sketch. It's so perfect. And I just wanted to share these particular items because they're so out of this world that I needed to shout them out because they're incredible. And that is the drawing board for issue 30. Now it's time for everybody's favorite wizard quiz for issue number 30. Do you have the time to listen to me whine about nothing and everything all at once? I am one of those melodramatic fools neurotic to the bone, no doubt about it. Sometimes I give myself the creeps Sometimes my mind plays tricks on me Now as I mentioned in the last mini episode, we're going to do the quizzes a lot differently now. I'm going to read out the questions, we're going to post them on our social media. If you can solve all the questions and figure out the chromium code, I will send you a prize. It might be a wizard sticker, it might be a superhero t-shirt, who knows? We'll figure it out. You'll get something cool in the mail, but you need to solve all of the questions and dissect the code and put it on our social media. If you can get it, if you're the first person, you will get a prize from us. Remember, this has to be in the continental United States. That is the 48 contiguous states. We cannot send it to Hawaii, Alaska, Canada, Puerto Rico, Guam, anywhere else like that. It has to be in the 48 states. In Wizards Contest 30, the prizes that were listed were a grand prize of what says one lucky dog wins a massive 38 and a half by 28 and a half inch uncut sheet of framed chromium wizard trading cards featuring Spawn, Violator, and Wildcats autographed by card artists Greg Capullo and Travis Cherest. Wow, that's actually kind of cool. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty impressed by that. The second prize is a set of Spawn 16 through 18 signed by artist Greg Capullo and a Wildcats yearbook number one signed by artist Travis Cherist. Or 
a set of the three different cards, Violator, Spawn, and Wildcats, signed by Capullo and Cherist. Your choice. The third prize is a copy of Wildcats trade paperback, including Wildcats number zero, or a copy of the Savage Dragon trade paperback. Your choice. The questions. There are only six, and I'm probably not going to know any of the answers to these, so I can't be of any help to you. Question number one, who is Terry and Wanda's daughter? Four letters, the fourth letter is the riddle question letter. Question number two, who got the savage dragon his job? Two words, three mystery letters. Question number three, Wildcats members are also known as blank. Two words, only one mystery letter in the second word. Question number four. Which group works for Supreme? Two words, two mystery letters, one in the first word, one in the second word. Question number five. What's Vendetta's allies? Two words, mystery letter is in the second word. The sixth and final question is, Lord Emp's company is named blank. Two words, mystery letter is in the first word. If you can get all those mystery letters and solve the Chromium code, we will send you a prize. Remember, has to be in the continental United States. Last but not least, I found an interesting segment toward the end of the magazine that is called the Wiz Quiz. And let's talk about it. So when I was perusing through this book after I finally opened it, I came across this Wiz Quiz toward the very, very back of the book on page 199. And it basically is a questionnaire by Wizard asking us, the readers, what we think of the particular issues. So the first question says, what did you think of the articles in this month's edition of Wizards? This sucks. Was it great, okay, or lame? It was okay, I think. Paying homage. Great, okay, or lame? It was pretty great. Men of Iron. I thought it was great. I liked it. So yeah, I'm going to give that one a great. Backstage at the Mystery Theater. I don't even remember reading that one. So I'll say it's forgettable. I'll call it lame. In the Can. I don't remember this one either. So I'm going to call that lame also. Next question. Check off any contests in this issue of Wizard which you entered. The Chromium Contest, the Drawing Board Contest, the Enveloping Letter Art, hmm. and Toying Around. Well, I didn't enter in any of those. And if you did, and you're listening to our podcast, let us know. That would be cool. The next question is, in order of most favorite to least favorite, list your top five favorite comic book artists. Of this time, I'd probably have to go Jim Lee... Greg Capullo, Todd McFarlane, John Romita Jr. because of the Daredevil stuff. And I guess we'll say Stephen Platt because he seems like to be the guy right now. So we'll go with those guys. Great. Next question is, in order of most favorite to least favorite, list your top five comic book writers. Peter David, Frank Miller, Danny O'Neill, Dan Jurgens. I can't think of top five off the top of my head. But whatever. Moving on. In order of most favorite to least favorite, list your five favorite comic book characters, including both heroes and villains. Number one is Batman. Number two would be Superman at this time. Number three would be Green Lantern. Number four would be Spider-Man. And number five would have been probably a toss-up between U.S. Agent and Captain America. Next question is, how do you feel about polybagged comics. It doesn't affect my decision to purchase a comic. I buy two, one to open and one to keep closed. I refuse to buy polybagged books. Back then, it didn't affect my decision. Nowadays, I'd probably buy two. What do you look for first in a comic book? Good art, good story, how it ties into continuity, the cover, its potential to increase in value. Back then, it would have been good art. Today, I'm a sucker for a cover. 
<laughs> I'll admit it. And if it has a good story, that helps. But I like a good cover. I do like good art. And I do like a good story. I don't necessarily care if it ties into continuity. But if it increases in value, I could care less. Because I'm going to read them. They're going to go in a bin. Hopefully someday I'll read them again. Or they will just sit in a long box forever. The last question is... How do you feel about various versions of the same issue being released? For example, a higher priced collector's edition and a lower priced standard edition of a particular comic book. I'll buy the collector's edition issue only if something about it special features is cool. I prefer the collector's edition. I prefer the standard's edition. I buy both. Back then, I probably just would have bought the standard edition. Now, I probably buy both at times. I've done that several times where I'll buy one to read and one to be, you know, a storage or display copy. And that is the Wiz Quiz. That was kind of fun. It was not what I expected, but it's pretty cool. I enjoy it, and that's interesting. Well, that's it for mini-episode 30.5. Thanks so much for listening. You can check us out on our social media. Twitter is at Wizards Comics. Instagram is Wizards underscore comics. And you can find us on our YouTube channel as well as our Patreon, patreon.com slash Wizards Comics to get real exclusive, cool, exciting content as well as our monthly geek hangout that we do over Zoom where we show off some of our coolest and nerdy stuff. It's super fun. We've got tons of content coming for our YouTube channel and you can go to our Tee Public store to get some sweet merch. But until next time, don't forget to keep your books bagged and boarded. of the Retro Network.